it's so weird how as soon as club football finishes, you just straight away get excited for international football. And I feel like it didn't always used to be like that. I'm just getting over the fact that Spurs have slumped to a seventh place finish. And then the Euros provisional squad's announced and we haven't even had the Champions League final yet. There's just so much going on so quickly, but uh, I'm loving it. It's an exciting time. This is a really good chat with Stephen, who is the author of Arrival, which is uh, a book that looks at Scotland's path to qualifying for the 2019 Women's World Cup in France, but also kind of sets um, sets out how they got there over the last few decades in terms of development of women's football in Scotland. Stephen, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with all of the book launch. I guess ostensibly the book is about the World Cup. Um... But I guess once I got into the process of writing the book, I, I think a couple of things came clear to me really early on. Uh, one, that this was a bigger story than the World Cup. So actually women's football and the journey that women's football has been on has obviously been a, a difficult one at times and challenging both uh, generally and also for, for players. And I guess even that Scotland squad that got to the World Cup, I guess it came quite clear to me that it, was a, it wasn't a sort of overnight success. It was a sense of actually there's been a process here of moving the squad forward, proving the squad, building, putting all the little building blocks in place that were needed for that squad to, to be where it was and those players to be where they were and to get to the World Cup. So so the book starts, um, I guess, back in the 70s. So, uh, you know, when Scotland, uh, there was a vote on around Europe of whether to recognise women's football uh, from UEFA. And uh, uh, to Scotland's shame, they were the one country in Europe who said, no, we don't want to recognise women's football, whereas every other nation did. And I think, I guess I started the book at that point, um, because I guess to me that's quite a pivotal point in Scotland's history, because it kind of underlines what what the game has been up against. You know, it's you know, 1974, I think it was, you know, is relatively not that long ago. So to be at a point where it's not even recognised and the authorities in Scotland didn't want, still didn't want to recognise it, to then get to a World Cup, you know, in 2019, I think just underlines what a great journey that was and what a, what a lot of sacrifice and effort people put into it. So uh, to me, that's that's where it starts. And that's sort of, I guess, it talks you through that, that whole journey right up to the sort of qualification for the, for the French World Cup. Uh, you mentioned the building blocks. What what to you are those those building blocks that kind of get us from from then to now? Yeah, I think well. So I guess the first is is sort of I guess professionalising the game and investing in the game. And I think you know I, I, again one of the people key people I spoke to very early on in the process of writing the book was Anna Signo, who took the squad who, who was obviously from, came from Sweden where there's a real strong culture of investing in the game, uh, of, of training, a way of training, a way of being as an elite athlete. Um, and that perhaps maybe wasn't in Scotland there at the time when she when she arrived. The, the beginnings of that had started under Vera Pau, um, but she came and obviously then realised kind of what she was up against. And, and, and speaking to Anna, uh, I guess it was again, it underlined that sense of there was a process here. It wasn't, a, it, was a, and it was quite a long process and there were a lot of things to change in terms of training, facilities, the types of pitches that people were playing on, you know, things like nutrition and strength and conditioning, things that were taken um, as read in Sweden, you know, because they'd obviously got to the sort of semi-final of the World, or the final of the World Cup, should I say, uh, just previously. So bringing that to Scotland and bringing to the, that to the players, even though the game wasn't professional, 
or, or professionalized was just almost professionalizing it within the setup it was and even stuff like changing the season you know so the, the players weren't playing and it's sort of the worst of Scottish winter on those on those pitches uh, and also stuff like I guess uh, establishing a national academy um, and I get one of the interesting things I, I think that Anna talked about was almost it was as much off the field as it was on the field so she worked with the clubs around Scotland and obviously Glasgow City is a sort of I guess epitome of that but to professionalise and work with coaches so that everybody around the Scottish game I guess got an understanding of what it takes to uh, bring players through what it takes to be a, an elite athlete uh, and I guess that that was one of the key phrases she talked about I think just that sense of I'm an elite athlete here and everything I will do and everything the clubs will do will, will be geared towards that. I think that's that's such an interesting point, right? That off the pitch stuff is is as important, if not more important, than the on the pitch stuff. When I start thinking about, I suppose coming at this from the perspective in England, you've kind of got the players. So how good the players are is obviously going to determine how good the team is. How good the coaches are, that's going to determine how good the team is. And then there's this like broad category of like infrastructure and in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, and so strength and conditioning and nutrition and the professionalizing, all those sorts of things, comes there. I suppose we can put funding in there as well. And I think with funding, very often I find it's like, oh, we, we, just, have to, we just have to fund it without yeah. really knowing what that means. And I suppose the question off the back of that is like, how much money are we talking? Maybe not exact figures, but an idea. And where in that infrastructure category did that money go? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know in terms of the actual figures and numbers, and and also, I guess the the thing to stress was it was coming from a very a very low base, if, if almost a zero base, you know, in terms of of what funding was there. So I guess anything was an improvement of of what went before. But again, one of the things I touch on in the book that came through quite clearly, speaking to both Anna, uh, and I also interviewed Sheila Begbie, who was a sort of first women's head of uh, head of women and girls football at the SFA, and. Uh, it was a real battle, I think, all the way through to get funding for any initiative that they wanted to do, whether that was taking the coaches. So one of the things they did was they took the coaches to Sweden, took them around various uh, teams and to give the coaches a sense of what, what an elite environment looked and felt like uh, was part of that. Uh, they all, I guess, obviously setting up the National Academy as well. They needed funding for that. So I think it was, it was almost, the, I got the sense they went about it on a, sort of case-by-case case basis of like, what are we trying to do? How, how are we going to do that? What, what resources need to go into that? So obviously the National Academy, really important. And, you know, you look at a lot of the players who are in the team now that came through that National Academy setup. So again, just initially at Stirling University, you know, where players are together, playing, training uh, under Pauline Hamill, professionalising effectively while also studying, obviously. So I think I think it was... A case of what do we need to change and then where do we need to, to to get the resources for that and i think it was always a battle and you know uh, anna senior talked about you know even after qualifying for the euros still in those meetings at the sfa having that argument and having to put your case forward to get resources so um, and i don't know what the situation is like at the moment but i suspect there's probably still a little bit of that that you're having to fight your corner for women's football and, and get the resources which you know either isn't seen as priority or you know uh, is kind of an afterthought at times as a danger I think. It's uh, it's interesting you say that because I had Carrie Dunn on and she's written about the 
kind of the development of women's football in England over the last few years, kind of cresting in major tournaments in the same way. Um, and she made the point that like when the team's doing well, everyone's like, yeah, great, let's fund it. Let's let's kind of support yeah. this. This is so important. Um, but she made the point that like, well, if we don't do so well at the next tournament, it might be in a kind of a bit of a, a tricky situation. I wonder how much you how much stock you put in that specifically for, for women's football in Scotland. And then I guess as a second part to that question, like how much is this current group of players like kind of flying the flag for, you know, potentially the next 10, 15, 20 years in terms of success, quite qualifying for major tournaments and, and, and hopefully doing well at those tournaments. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. And I think there is, there is a danger of just if either if you're doing well or you're not doing well. So obviously I guess where Scotland's at, you know, we've had two tournaments, which has been fantastic. Unfortunately, we've not qualified for the, for the next Euros. Um, you know, and I think the other, the other dynamic in Scotland, it's maybe slightly different to England is, uh, if you go back to the European Championships when Scotland qualified, like Scotland as a nation hadn't been at any major tournaments <laughs> since 1998. Um, and I think that helped in a, in a slightly strange way in the sense that it put a little bit, it's like, well, wait a minute, here's a Scottish football team at, an, at a major tournament. And obviously uh, that that was a very unusual thing. There's a generation of, of children who hadn't seen their team at a World Cup or at a Euros. Um, so but the flip side of that now is that there's a there's maybe a slight danger that now Scotland have qualified for the Euros coming up in the summer, that the sort of women's game goes on to the sort of back burner of, well, OK, it's, it's less of a priority, uh, particularly given that they've not qualified. So I think you really are, op because that battle is still ongoing and probably not won in terms of funding and, you know, and being totally equal and totally secure, I think there probably is the danger of uh, you're open to the vagaries of if you're doing well or not doing well. Um, in terms of the players, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a huge, I mean, I mean the main thing is they, they have, uh, I guess, part of the um, subtitle of the book is how they inspired a generation, took their place on the world stage and inspired a generation. So I guess they've kind of done their job a little bit in terms of having uh, inspired a generation. Um, but obviously there is an onus on 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 those on the players and the squad for to develop in the future and hope and you know, hopefully they will. And I think they're all very, again, the thing that struck me talking to the players is, they're kind of not just footballers. They know they're footballers and role models and they have a sort of almost a responsibility to progress this in the same way that, you know, the players that came before them sort of smoothed their path a bit. They, I think they, a lot of the players quite admirably have a recognition that there's a responsibility in them to smooth the path of, of those that are coming after them, which obviously they've done a huge amount in terms of just visibility and, and being at a tournament, but there's obviously still a, a little bit of a job on that to do. You mentioned uh, Scotland having not qualified since 98. I've watched the uh, BBC did like a, I can't remember, it must have come up before the World Cup in 2019 because it's all about the qualifying. I've re-watched yeah. that just to get the players like more familiar in my head. And they're all talking about like France 98. And as they're talking about that, as they're like, you know, first time seeing a Scottish team, it's like Colin Hendry walking out alongside Roberta Carlos. Like, yeah. This is this is this is what it was in terms of Scottish football, like on the big on the big stage. And I just yeah. thought, what? yeah, I mean, I think Lee Alexander talks about watching that. You know, as a child, as a small small child, and I think Jen Beattie was over in France on a on a holiday and and sort of with her family and and talked about that. So yeah, I mean. It, 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 it was a long time, I think, and uh, I, it's funny. I I went to France '98 uh, with with my family, and uh, 
you know, and thought this is great. You know, so it was my first sort of tournament, and I thought I'd kind of I'm like I love this. I'm going to start going to World Cups and Euros, and obviously we've never qualified, hadn't qualified since since then. So, yeah, I think I think that that helped in a sense that as I said, there there was a sense of actually this is a big achievement. It's not you know perhaps you know an England or a France or a Germany. You're kind of expected to be there, and you know nine times out of ten you are there. I think for the women's team and for Scotland as a whole, there's not that expectation. And I guess the, the 98 experience onwards has kind of reinforced that actually we can't just expect this. So actually it means when it come, when these things come around, I, th- I think people appreciate them and actually realise what achievement is. In the same way that the men's team uh, in the summer, you know, there's a, there's a recognition of actually, well, this is a now, we're not taking it for granted. It's quite special. And obviously for the women not having been at Euros at a World Cup, I think that made it even more special. Why did you want to write the book? What what got you into the, I suppose, the idea of, of, of telling this story? Yeah, so so this is my second book. So the first book I wrote was about Wraith Rovers, which is my team of support. It was about a team I love and, and, and a great thing that they did and winning and winning a, a cup in Scotland back in the in the 90s, early 90s. So I guess I kind of like writing about teams that I, I've got a real strong affection for. And and this is a is a team that I have. Uh, I mean, again, the sort of visibility of the women's game gr- growing up and through those sort of years, I kind of really wasn't aware of it. Um, it was only when my own daughter started playing football that I became a bit more aware of the women's game. And so then we took her along to uh, to see the Scotland women's team who were playing at Tynecastle, Hearts Ground, just down the road from where we live in Edinburgh. Um, and I guess I, it sort of pricked my consciousness of, well, actually, there's a team here and there's a team a national team and then obviously doing quite interesting things at that point getting to playoffs and stuff so that's when we sort of started going and then we went to the Euros again going back to that sense of I went to France 98 you know it was like here's Scotland at Euros we're going to go and, and watch that because these these tournaments are special occasions and really great experiences so we went there as a family and I guess that even deepened my sort of uh, affection for the team because that was a great experience um, they they unluckily didn't get didn't get through but came really close when they beat Spain in the last game and and from then on I was kind of hooked so it's a team that it's a team that I love it's also I guess a team that maybe doesn't get the credit that it deserves in terms of just profile in the same way that women's football doesn't maybe doesn't get the hasn't historically had the sort of profile and coverage that it has I think you know the the women's team uh, and again given what we've done probably hadn't got that and it, it kind of goes back to the Wraith book you know I always think there's loads of books about the big clubs you know and if you like, talk about Scotland that's your Rangers and Celtic you know you go to a bookshop there's loads of Rangers and Celtic books about all sorts of things you don't get books on Wraith Rovers you don't you don't really get books on the Scotland women's national team so I, I, for me I think part of it is here's, here's teams are doing great things actually their story needs to be told. Funny at the moment like I'm a Spurs fan so trying to like get really excited about Spurs I'm finding really really tricky and I was remembering the other day when I was like I used to go to Barnet like fairly often and just and I think it's kind of been romanticized in my head and all of those you know everything that's wrong with modern football at the moment is kind of percolating constantly and you just you know rose tinted glasses to remember well we just used to walk in for 40p and get our hot chocolate but to an extent I do like miss that and I miss that more and more at the moment so I completely get what you're saying in terms of being able to have a real connection with yeah. a club but and that, the players who play there 
yeah, there's there's a real accessibility about that about both levels. So about Wraith Rovers is a, is not a huge club in Scotland. So there's a real accessibility to the players when you're you're kind of you're not just another body in the stands. There's a, there's a real community feel. Everybody knows each other. You know faces. And I actually think the women's game is like that as well. And even in the Scotland level, there's a real accessibility. There's a real sense of community about it. And I think you know the players make themselves very accessible. So at Scotland games. You know, uh, we've we've gone along with one daughter or her her teammates, and you know the players after they've played the game will will stand to the side and sign autographs and get pictures taken with people. You know, it's just a, there's a real accessibility and that creates a real connection I think between the fans and and the team as well. So I think that's that's something to be sort of cherished. It's maybe been lost elsewhere in the game. I was going to ask you about that because you know to think that like you kind of come to covering football you know later than some other people would. To find yourself in a position where you can write the book and have access to manager and access to the players, like, were you surprised at how easy that was to, to get? Um, yes and no. I mean, and people. I mean, I find people hugely, hugely supportive. I think is, is one of the things to the process of writing the book, and and people, I, I think, probably appreciated that that there was a book going to be written about about this team because you know the players and the management, the people around women's football, love love this team. You know themselves so I, I think seeing it being recognized I think was a positive but I I think I, I mean I, I'm always a bit a little bit surprised because I am just a fan you know I'm, I'm, I'm not immersed in uh, football or in uh, you know that's not that's not my sort of work area so to be able to to even you know sit sit and chat uh, with, with Shelley Kerr or Anna Senio, you know people who've done great things in the game uh, people like Pauline Hamill, Julie Fleeting uh, you know, great, great careers is a real honour and a real, a real sort of privilege for me. And and it was the same with the Wraith Rovers book as well. I mean, I, 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 there was a slight sort of pinch yourself of I'm getting to, to speak to people who I really admire and and you know I really enjoy watching from from the stands as well. And I've watched them and and, and been there at great great moments and and in, in their sort of foot, football careers. So. No, there's a, there's a there's a huge openness, and I think there's just a real sense of community. Even since I've launched the book, there's a real sense of community and support about women's football. And I guess that maybe goes back to the journey it's on that it, it isn't there yet. There's still yeah, huge huge changes have happened in the last ten years, but there's still a way to go to get it to what it can can be and the absolute peak of what it can be. So uh, I think that maybe helped in a sense of people being willing to speak and being willing to help and being willing to get get behind the book, which is fantastic for, for myself, obviously. Do you think that the ban on women's football has affected Scotland maybe differently to how it's affected women's football in England? Is there anything specific about it in Scotland that um, that maybe we don't get in England? I'm not sure if there's anything massively uh, different in that sense, and it just it set both games back hugely. I, th I think you know, and obviously there's still the, the the game is still recovering from that. And again, the the period that the book covers, uh, you know, qualifying for World Cup is a great achievement in and of itself. But from where it's come from, I think again just elevates that achievement to this is something even more more special. I think, and actually kind of rewards the people who over those 40, 50 years sort of fought you know so uh, you know people who weren't allowed to play at grounds who you know couldn't get referees had to change in the sort of groundsman's hut all these sorts of stories that people talked about I think it's still recovering and I think it probably will be recovering from that for a for a long time and the you know the lack of investment and even now you still see 
the kind of battles, you know, yeah, things are much better. There's pathways, the profile of visibility is getting better, but there's still challenges around, you know, how people view the game and whether investment goes into the game. And I think, you know, that that's probably a legacy of 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 that ban from years ago. You know, if it hadn't hadn't been banned and been allowed to evolve as men the men's game has it would be in a lot better place. You know, it's obviously you can't say where it would be, but I think it, it's pretty obvious it would be in a lot better place than where it is now. So that that's maybe why there still is a way to go. You mentioned uh, Shelley Kerr earlier. How much time did you get to spend with her? Yeah, a, a lot of time. And, she, and and Shelley was absolutely fantastic in terms of give, giving me her own time. Um, obviously, it was written in, in sort of COVID, so unfortunately, we didn't get to sit down together as I've done in previous books. Um, but no, she was she was really uh, helpful, really uh, uh, open and honest, I, I guess, about her experience through both in women's football and in managing the team. Um, and also was hugely helpful in terms of sort of, you know, getting me access to other people or putting me in touch with other people. And actually there's a, there's a sort of loads of great photos in the book. So she, she got me access to the sort of SFA's archive of photos, you know, obviously of games, but behind the scenes and in camp and stuff like that. So, you know, she, she was hugely supportive uh, and, and one of the key people really who, who uh, and again, it was a huge honour to, to, to have time sitting down with her chat chatting to her about her experiences through through football not just just the world cup mm. when in that bbc documentary again she's one when the camera's on her it's like she just jumps out the screen at, like she's just like mesmeric when she was talking just found yeah. her so so engaging um and yeah I, I think that that um variety that she's had in terms of her coaching experience is yeah. is really interesting particularly when it comes to managing a, a national team because the day-to-day is completely different than it is with the club side. Yeah, and she, she talked very, uh, you know, Shelley's obviously really driven and really committed to football and has been for a long time. And she talks in the book and, and talked when we spoke about, I guess, trying to get as much experience as possible. So a very deliberate choice to, I'm going to manage a junior team, I'm going to manage a men's team, I'm going to manage, you know, a club side and, and obviously at an international level. So it was trying to really soak up I think someone in the book described her as a sponge trying to soak up as much as she can from each coaching role and, and take that uh, into managing the Scotland team and I guess now and, and where she is now you know take what she learned from, from managing Scotland and into her new role in, in the England setup so um, yeah obviously real uh, love of the game and passion for the game that just really really shines through and and actually when a number of the players talked about Shelley as a player that exact same passion of I think there's a quote from Ifunadeke in the book saying you know like she was really passionate as a player but you know particularly when she sung the anthem you know even even when she was singing the anthem she was putting that that sort of passion into it so you know a really impressive impressive character. Going into the World Cup in, in twenty nineteen in France, what like what was the feeling? What do you get what was your sense of the feeling amongst the players, coaches, around the camp generally as to like what would have been success? There was confidence, I think. I mean, I think there was there was recognition that it was a it was actually quite a difficult group they'd been placed in. It's a it's a very Scottish thing to get put in a hard group. But, you know, England obviously had done really well. Uh Japan had obviously won it. So you're talking two really probably the, 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 strong, the strongest seeds you could get, really, aside from the USA. Um, and then even Argentina, you know, they're, 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 they were the sort of seed below us, but I, I guess their 
their sort of seeding or, or your FIFA rating and being, being sort of impacted by how often they can play and, and stuff like that. So again, you know, a really strong team. So so yeah, there was a recognition, I think, that the, the, the group was difficult, but there was an absolute belief, I think, that they could get out of the group. And that, I think, was was the ambition. And, and you know, fast forward into what happened, I guess that's probably what created so much of the disappointment is that they, they believed they had a really strong group of players, uh, a really strong sort of teamwork ethic, and and you know had every opportunity of of of, of progressing into that round and actually if they got out of the group you know might, might have been able to do something in one off in one off games so so yeah there was a there was a confidence I think from having been at been at the Euros and also I guess uh, you know there was a mix of people who had either just missed out on being selected for the Euros or people like Kim Little or Lizzie Arnott who'd been injured or Jen Beattie who'd been injured at the Euros so had missed it through injury. Um, and then the people who had actually even been at the Euros, I think, you know, were, were kind of disappointed of not of how that had ended and not progressing. Um, and maybe the game against England, it was a really difficult game at the Euros, obviously losing 6-0. So there was a sense of we want to kind of make make up for that and do better than that. So there was a real determination, I think, from, from, from people going into that tournament. Plus excitement, obviously, because, you know, it, it's, it was just a huge, it was a big thing. It was a step up in the Euros. It was a bigger stage and, and, and it was hugely exciting. Mm. I'm guessing it's the Argentina game that sticks out as like, I don't know, maybe with you as supporters, players, whatever, it's like, they're like, okay, that's kind of, yeah. obviously that's where it went wrong in terms of results, but like that's the, those, those are the games that stick with you and think, okay, we, we had a really good opportunity there and it just, it, didn't happen for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess part part of what I realised when I was uh, I was starting to write the book is I, I kind of wanted to reclaim the the World Cup story a bit from that last fifteen minutes against Argentina because obviously it was hugely dramatic, uh, you know, uh, to go from three 0 to three all and in the way that they did and you know we we were there and we were unfortunately right behind Lee Alexander's goal so we kind of watched this all unfold in, in a sort of close proximity so I, I can understand even for us how that felt never mind the actual players who invested their whole career in, in playing for Scotland but yeah I mean the Argentina game obviously is a very dramatic moment and I think that's one that sort of kind of sticks in the players heads and uh, I think Shelley Kerr said she'll sort of, you know, she'll she'll pick the bones out of it for a hundred years type of thing, uh, and forever probably. So there there is a there is a, a a focus on that, and it was a almost kind of unbelievable way to finish the World Cup, and obviously not in the way that anybody would have wanted. Um, but I think the story of the Scotland women's team and and even Scotland at the World Cup is so much more than that. And you know, you when you talk to players. Uh, about what it was like to walk out against England in the, in the first game and, you know, the experience of that and the build-up to the game, the build-up to the World Cup even. And, you know, we got almost uh, over 18,000 fans at Hamden in the last warm-up game, you know. Just moments like that, I think, you know, were were real, real high moments. But obviously how it ended in Argentina, it probably took a little bit of time. And, and the number of the players that said this to me, it took a while for them to kind of get over it and come to terms with it and, and then actually see the positives in the World Cup rather than just reflect on sort of how it ended. No question. I think I, I want to talk about the players, some of the individuals anyway, specifically in a little bit, but for, for some of them who, you know, they play for such good dominant, dominant club sides to be yeah. part of like a, a setup where something like that happens. It's probably, maybe not new, because it might have happened, you know, in other, in other iterations of other points of their career, but definitely, definitely something 
um, unique about that moment. Um, I was going to ask, what do you remember about how VAR was used? Because if you were in the stadium at these games and it was like, kind of like, oh yeah, Women's World Cup, we're just going to chuck in this thing and we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of VAR generally, and actually one of the one of the benefits of supporting Wraith Rovers is you're nowhere near VAR, and there's there's, there's <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with hindsight, particularly the group stages, it was just sort of sort of foisted on the tournament, and let's just see how this goes. And a lot of the players hadn't actually experienced playing with VAR either. And, you know, a, a lot of the problems were in the group stages. And I think peculiarly for Scotland and, and you know, it kind of it kind of worked against Scotland at, at every stage, really. So you sort of think, well, VAR, there's a consistency with it. You know, it'll call things right or it'll call, even if that's tight margins, it'll call things the same way all the time. But obviously, you know, even going right in every game, there was VAR incidents. So the, the, the losing the goal. I mean, Scotland started really well against England. And obviously, I watched the games back for when I was writing the book and they obviously had been in the stadium for that game as well. But, you know, Scotland started really well, had a great sort of 10, 15 minutes. And then, obviously, there was a handball VAR and that kind of just knocked them for the rest of the half. And it took this to the second half to recover. And then you you, you go to the Japan game and, you know, a couple, there was a couple of clear incidents there, a, a particularly clear penalty for Scotland. Uh, just not given, no no VAR check, nothing. You know, it just seemed to be totally absent. And then obviously you get to you get to Argentina, and it, it, there was almost a sort of sense of inevitability about it by that point. I've I've said to a number of people like I'm I'm never one for thinking that there's any sort of cheating or bias going on. You know, you'll have games where you'll disagree with decisions, but I've always thought that it's always just it's always just human error, you know, or or ineptitude. It's probably the one time, and I don't think this now because I've gone back and watched it and I, I kind of realise why these things happen now, but in that moment, in that ground, I, it was probably the closest I've ever come to, to saying, you know what, we're being absolutely cheated here. Particularly once the penalty was given, the penalty was saved, and then the penalty was having to be retaken. So, And, and that was a difficulty to go from that elation of Lee Alexander, or the depths of having lost a penalty, thinking, oh no, to, to Lee Alexander saving it and the absolute elation of that to then go back to VAR again. I, I think that was kind of the moment I just saw. We'd kind of had it and thought, right, this we're just not getting through here. Somebody's made a decision somewhere. Now, I know that's not the case and, uh, now, but having reflected it with a bit of maturity. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a, it was a very unfortunate. I think it did get better in the later stages of the tournament, but um, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't great in those early stages and particularly not great for Scotland for some reason. Yeah, it was horrendous. I remember we so Goldigers, uh, some of the Goldigers uh, committee like put on this like festival of football, and we screened loads of the games. And I think loads of us were watching. I can't remember which game we were watching. Anyway, and it like cut to the um, the Scotland Argentina game. Yeah, and they were like, "Oh, there's been a there's a penalty, so we're gonna come here." And then we watched it. It was like saved, and then we went back to the other game, and it's like, "Oh no, there's a retake," and it was like back over here. It was just chaos, chaos. I think it just, I mean, I've watched football, a lot of football for a long time. It, it's kind of the most unique, uh, I guess, incident I've ever seen or or 15 minutes really of, of, you know, madness for want of a better word that, you know, it was, it was definitely the most dramatic I've ever seen in any sort of football at any level of, of, of you know, just uh, emotion and going from that high to that low really. 
I wanted to talk just about some of the individuals in this squad because I think, like, even just looking at the the list of players who were in the World Cup squad in 2019 and thinking about like where they're at in terms of their careers, but also kind of what's next for them domestically. So, Jen Beatty's at Arsenal, 30. Yeah. Sophie Howard's just been promoted with Leicester, 27. Um, Kim Little, Arsenal captain, 30. Caroline Weir, 25 at City. Aaron Cuthbert's 22 at Chelsea. Lisa Evans, 28 at Arsenal. Claire Emsley, 27 with Everton. Jane Ross, um, at United, Curtis Smith at United. Yeah. Like, these are players who are like, this is a great, great time to be playing for, to be playing for Scotland. And that all of those players are getting good minutes for really, really good club teams. Huge, huge talents in there and, and huge experience as well. You know, you think about like uh, Jane Beattie and, and Kim Little have been playing for Scotland for a long time, you know, came into Scotland, uh, the Scotland national team, very, very young. So have that immense experience of the immense experience of playing in the WSL, uh, you know, Aaron Cuthbert having just played in a, in a Champions League final uh, at the very, very top of the game. And I think also the other thing is, um, even in a professional sense, I mean, when we went to the World Cup and went to the Euros, you know, there were a number of those players who were uh, not, not professional or not full-time, you know, whereas even in Scotland now with Rangers and Celtic and investing in, in Glasgow City as well, you know, a number of the squad who are not in England are also full-time professionals, you know, so they're not having to balance um, their work and, and, and football. And I think that obviously makes a huge difference in, in again, going back to Anna Senior when we talked about that, part of her process in building the squad was getting people out of Scotland, either down to England or into into clubs abroad, so where they were professional and could just purely concentrate on, the, on football, again, to give that sense of, you're an elite athlete and this is, but yeah, it's hugely talented squad, which I guess makes it even harder that I guess they're not going to be at the Euros just through circumstance. Um, uh, you know, because actually it's, it's not just a squad, I think, that could, you know, if they'd got to the Euros, you know, would have been, it would have been great. But I think actually, you know, that's a squad that could actually do something in the Euros, you know, in, in terms of just the, the sheer uh, experience there and, and, and the actual ability. I mean, people like, Aaron Cuthbert and, and Caroline Weir, you know, in the WSL are like sort of top top performers in, in that league, you know, across that league, even given all all the talent in it. So, yeah, that's a, there's a there's a huge opportunity going going forward. I think. How many of those players do you think have like a decent case to be in the Team GB Olympic squad? Yeah, I think I think a number of them do. I think I mean I think Kim Little obviously does it's just with her, her ability and her experience. I think uh, you know the two I've just mentioned there. I think Caroline Weir has been an outstanding performer. I mean Aaron Cuthbert. You know you look at that Chelsea team and the quality is in that Chelsea team. Yet Aaron still gets minutes and is still a, an integral part of that team. So I think I mean to me I think obviously slightly biased but I think those three should should be in and I, and I think if any of those were omitted I think you, you kind of have to ask the, ask the question why um, obviously Lisa Evans, Jen Beattie the, the various injuries around and around those players so there's stuff like that but even players like Claire Emsley as well you know is doing really well a young player and um, I think the difficulty is just this the number in that squad is limited um, and, and obviously there's probably always going to be a slight uh, bias towards you know players from 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 the English team, but I think yeah definitely if, if I was choosing it, I think Kim Little, uh, Caroline Weir, and Aaron Cuthbert would all, all be in that squad. 
Yeah, I think I'm with you. It's, it's just 18. It doesn't seem like a big, just doesn't seem yeah. like a big enough number. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a shame. And it just, again, you know, a couple of people I spoke to, you know, Ethio Medieke obviously was, was one of the players along with Kim at the last, uh, not the last, but the 2012 Olympics. And, you know, she talked, the way she talks about that, it's, it's, a, it's a really special experience for, for players to, to be on that level and to be in that squad. So, you know, I, I just love as many of, of the Scotland team to get that experience as, as is possible, really. Having teams playing in the same division, some of them are part-time, some of them are full-time, is just so, so tricky. So the Crystal Palace keeper, Chloe Morgan, she's the goalkeeper coach for Goldigers. Um, and I chatted to her and she was on the podcast as well. And she was saying, like, we play against Leicester and they're fully professional. Yeah. And we're there part-time. She's a solicitor. <laughs> and obviously, you know, there's a level of ability that they've all got, but they just can't go all in in the same way that the players they're playing against. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing the same in the Scotland, the Scottish Women's Premier League at the moment as well, I think. So, obviously, it's great. I mean, Glasgow City have been up there, obviously, for years. Um, but Rangers and Celtic, as I said, recently have invested and, you know, have got professional teams. So, if you look at the Rangers team, you know, there, there's a lot of Scotland national players in there. You know, and Nicky Docherty, Lizzie Arnott and, and various people in there, and Jenna Fife. Um, but, again, they're coming up against part-time teams, you know, so this the sort of bottom half of that league. Is, is, is purely part-time and some very young teams just developing and, and squads developing. So, you know, you are seeing those three teams kind of running away with it and some some big scores in there. So it's, it's always going to be a balance, I think, just to, I guess, uh, keep the league competitive. You know, it's great, it's great that there's three teams there sort of vying for the for the, for the the title, but I, I guess the, the long-term goal has to be to, I guess, invest in all the teams and get, get them all up to... A level so that it so that it is competitive, but yeah, though the low. I mean, again, going back to our Wraith Rovers experience, we at times we've been part time and we're now full time, but there's always there's always been a difficulty of kind of challenging and being able to challenge if you're a if you're a part time team. How big of an impact does it have to have? Well, in 2019, anyway, Nicholas Sturgeon kind of come out and really publicly say that she's supporting the team. You know, just in terms of goodwill, I suppose, but also also financially, money wise. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the the Scottish government, both at the Euros and uh, at the World Cup, you know, allowed those part-time players, you know, fund put funding in place for those part-time players to, I guess, be full-time effectively in the run-up to the World Cup, uh, and then run-up to the Euros as well, which I know was a, on an individual level was a huge uh, benefit to the, to those players. So I think that that's really important. I mean, I think just. I think again, going back to the story of 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 the Scotland women's team, and one of the things that Sheila Begbie and Anna Senior talked about was, I guess, at the time where they were looking for investment, there there, there was the the Scottish Parliament was kind of just up and running, or had it not been going that that long. So again, I think that meant that obviously the sport is devolved to to the Scottish Parliament. So uh, they talked about going through there and making the case uh, for funding and making the case for support. And, and got a lot of funding for various initiatives and posts through that way. So I think, you know, regardless of, of, of who it is at, at the top of government, I think with the backing of government and support of government and recognition, I guess, that the role can play in the nation and also particularly, I guess, for young women, it's really crucial in that sense of, 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 of keeping people active and giving people a focus. And I know since the World Cup, the numbers at, at all the clubs have gone up hugely in terms of actual children participating and our young females want to participate in, in football which can only be a good thing so the more government can invest in that and support that the better really.
Mm. How often is your daughter playing now? Uh, she's playing uh, well. It's obviously, it's coming back from COVID, but she she's playing uh, a, a game every Saturday. So they're back to playing games. Um, she trains two, two, three times a week. So um, again, it's just it's a huge thing, and I've seen on a very personal level. You know, she plays for a club here in Edinburgh, Boroughmuir Thistle, and you know their numbers have gone through the roof since the since the since the World Cup in terms of people being interested in it. It's just great to see so many young girls like playing football and enjoying football and again you go back to where my book starts when people are not even not are being actively discouraged from playing or being told that this is not for you I think if we can get to the stage where this is a game for everybody I think is is fantastic and everybody can enjoy it and you know whether whether they take that on and play for Scotland or whether they just uh, you know play for a while I mean one of the things that, that struck me really nice that Anna Senior said was you know doesn't you don't have to be a Kim Little, even if you just play football for four or five years, what you get in that four or five years from being part of a team from playing football will stay with you for the rest of your life. So there's a real opportunity, I think, just to grow the game and, and, and let as many people and as many young girls enjoy it as possible. Mm-hmm. Arrival in all good bookshops, online, all good websites, that that whole thing. Yeah, it's in all good bookshops. It's uh, it's online via the usual the usual things, or you can go onto the Pitch Publishing uh, uh, website and ha- and have a look at it there. So, but no, I mean it, it's there, and it's and you know obviously the more people that read it, the better. I think it's a great team, a great story, and a story that deserves to be told as widely as possible. So, uh, the more people read it, that's fantastic. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Stephen. Really appreciate it, and uh, nice to nice to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me on.